Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben moss Backrat. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Friday, March 3rd. Growing up, I'd watch the Oscars and my favorite movies never won. It wasn't until I started to work in Hollywood that I understood why. The Oscars are a political contest, as much as an award of artistic merit. It's been that way since the beginning of the Academy back in 1927, when the organization was conceived as a way to calm different factions of a wild new industry, delay unionization efforts, help settle disputes. The awards were actually an afterthought. The original moguls realized a universal truth. Highly insecure people really like winning awards. And it wasn't long before Oscar campaigns were a thing. Back in the 30s, there were ads telling voters who to vote for. Then in the 60s and 70s, we saw events and glad handling, all the way through Harvey Weinstein and Miramax in the 90s through the 2010s, where he wasn't afraid to trash a rival movie like Saving Private Ryan when he had Shakespeare in Love, or stage outrageous stunts to get attention and frame his movies as somehow more important than just a movie. I remember when Harvey flew the real-life woman that Judi Dench played in Philomena to meet the Pope. He staged a mental health awareness event at the White House to promote Silver Linings Playbook. Like, ridiculously stuff, but effective. There's the whisper campaigns, like when all of a sudden everyone in town was talking about how the real-life guy that Russell Crowe played in A Beautiful Mind may have been anti-Semitic. Where did people get that idea? In political campaigns, politicians shake hands, kiss babies. Oscar contenders do Writers Guild Q&As and pose for selfies at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. Instead of primaries and caucuses, there's Golden Globes and the National Board of Review lists. There's strict rules you must follow, as we learned this year with the rogue Andrea Riseborough campaign, which leveraged social media and her famous friends to score Best Actress nomination out of the blue. Final Oscar voting began last night on this year's set of contenders, so I thought it was a good time to have on Michael Shulman, who, in addition to being a writer for The New Yorker, also wrote a fantastic new book called Oscar Wars, which tells the history of Hollywood through the prism of the Oscars. So today, the dirtiest and most amusing Oscar campaigns. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Michael Schulman, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of a very excellent new book called Oscar Wars. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I care very much about the Oscars for some bizarre reason that I'm sure a, a therapist could get to the bottom of uh, in my past. But uh, I also have, have been in the middle 
of a lot of these campaigns. It's a weird thing when you're the editor of The Hollywood Reporter, you sort of become a player in these dramas because the decisions we would make, uh, who to put on the cover, who to showcase in roundtables, who to interview, you know, what events to do, all of that would become enmeshed in these campaigns for the Oscars, which amazingly, people in 2023 still care very much about. It can be a career maker for actors if you win an Oscar, and or even if you're nominated. So the stakes are high here, and it got me thinking about where this all began and why the Oscars are what the Oscars are and why people campaign so hard for them. And it really does go back to the beginning of the Academy. I mean, I learned this in your book. You know, I, I, I'm curious what you think the start of Oscar campaigning is, because I think it goes all the way back to the first snub of Betty Davis in 1935, I believe it was, for It Happened One Night, where everyone thought she should have been nominated and she wasn't. So do you agree there? Well, for Of Human Bondage, she lost to Claudette Colbert from It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night, but... Right, right, right. um, I I mean, that was, you know, people talk about things like the snub, the Oscar snub, and it was fascinating to see that that had a sort of origin story, that there was actually a first big snub that got (laughs) everyone riled up. Um, this was uh, 1935, as you said. Uh, Betty Davis was in Of Human Bondage, where she plays this really nasty, wretched character. Um, it got a, a visceral response from audiences. And then when she wasn't nominated that year, it was shocking. And people started objecting. And they actually start. you know, the Academy was only a few years old. Uh, it was, it, you know, it was like eight years old at that point. The awards were even younger. They were six years old. And... The lack of Betty Davis on that list cast the entire endeavor under a cloud of of suspicion. Like, what do they really know what they're doing? <laughs> um, and so, what the Academy did in response was open the voting up to write-in campaigns, you know, so to give Betty Davis a chance. But that just made the entire thing a free for all because suddenly every studio could tell their employees, you know, let's do a block vote for our movie. And, um, you know, it was the, the voting was not cleansed of corruption due to, you know, writing campaigns. Now, anyway, Betty Davis still lost. She <laughs> lost in the, you know, it was, the, it was a total sweep for it happened one night. So mm-hmm. she lost to Claudette Colbert. Uh, but the next year she won for Dangerous, a movie she didn't even think was very good. Um, and she thought Catherine Hepburn should win for Alice Adams. And she writes in her memoir about how, um, you know, it was the consolation prize and how now, you know, Catherine Hepburn's going to have to win for a different movie in the future because I took her Oscar this year. And we still see that happening. Like, absolutely, every, still a thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, there's a grand tradition of not just actors, but directors winning for their less good movie as a make good. I mean, Scorsese winning for The Departed or, you know, even somebody like you, you can take your pick of directors who who or actors who have won for not their greatest moment. But it happens. Leo in The Revenant. Leo in The Revenant. Although Leo's pretty damn good in The Revenant, whatever. But I agree with you. <laughs> Um, and this leads to not just backlash, but it leads to this new thing called Oscar campaigns. And in 1936, we saw MGM place the first four-year consideration advertising in the Hollywood Reporter, eight-page spread for a movie called Ah Wilderness, which interestingly enough, did not end up getting nominated. Right. Yeah. So the first Oscar official Oscar campaign, uh, 
did absolutely nothing. <laughs> Don't tell that to the current campaigners. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but what did this? How did this play out with the actual contenders? Did you see even back then this kind of grandstanding and public appearances and lunches and wooing and all the trappings of the award season that you see today, or was it much more subtle and dignified? Oh, well, I mean, it's nothing like it is today. And I think, uh, you know, the real transformation period was in the 90s with Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. Um, but yeah, I mean, even if you go back and read stories from like the, you know, the late 60s, there were cocktail parties, there were, you know, events for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, it, it, none of this was invented yesterday. Right. And by the 90s, when Harvey came along, there were already rules in place about campaigning. You know, there were rules against negative campaigning and things that the Academy found uh, unbecoming. Um, Harvey obviously broke a lot of those rules and they had to create new rules just for him. But there was a reason why those rules were in place. Yeah, it's interesting, though. Um, there was this famous Nikki Fink piece in New York Magazine about the Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan uh fight, which was a real fight, a real ugly one. Called and the spent, dirtiest uh, Oscar campaign ever yeah. by people. Uh, I mean, I've, and it's much more complicated than people remember. It's so complicated that I had to spend, you know, like over 40 pages on it um, <laughs> just to untangle everything that happened. But it really spilled over into the mainstream press in a way that Academy uh, Award campaigning had not. And one major piece of that was this Nikki Fink article where she called it the most contentious best picture campaign ever. And she quotes uh, Rick Robertson, who was a, a an Academy executive about all this stuff that was going on with Weinstein's campaign and DreamWorks kind of fighting back. And this Academy official said, well, we don't want to be big brother. Like there was a sense that they had, yes, they had rules, but they weren't going to spend a lot of energy policing campaigns. They like it. This is the secret about the Academy is they <laughs> like it. They like that people care. They like that there is this conversation and a season and the advertising and the billboards. And it creates a hoopla around the season. Yeah, it gets overboard sometimes and it makes people look petty and uh, mean-spirited. And they don't want that. But they like the campaigns. Well, yeah. And the the conversation that was happening within the Academy during that 1999 race was, this is good. This is, you know, people are getting invested in the in the race. They're, they're seeing these movies. Everyone's hearing about Shakespeare in Love. Everyone's hearing about Saving Private Ryan, that there's something interesting happened. So we're not going to go out of the, our way to stop that. However, that really changed because after that pivotal year, it was basically an arms race where, you know, Miramax had been doing all these various things, this really aggressive campaigning, um, and it worked. They won for Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, that was before my time, but I've talked to people who were in the room that night and the look on Spielberg's face when he lost to Harvey, it was it was as if you had gotten him up on stage and punched him in the face and knocked him out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, it yeah. was devastating. He could not believe that this little light movie had come in and Harvey had gone systematically one by one to these voters and convinced them to vote for his movie and not the war movie that, you know, changed the world in his mind. Yeah, and immediately after this happened, there, you know, there's an article in the New York Times the next day where executives are complaining how, you know, it, it's all turned into a political campaign. It's all about the money. And, you know, Miramax has 
change has corrupted this uh, this system. But then all of those same people copied what they saw as the <laughs> Weinstein playbook because yeah. they thought we're not going to let this happen again. He's not going to come to our turf and take our Oscars anymore. And so the next year, Terry Press at DreamWorks ran a, a, a really full-throated campaign for American Beauty. They outspent every other studio uh, by a factor of two. And it worked. They won. And then the next year was Gladiator. And they started having like a road show with, um, you know, with with uh, talkbacks with the talent every night. And that, of course, became a, a campaign staple. And that worked. Gladiator won. And then two years later, Harvey was back and won with Chicago. So it was an arms race in that everyone was trying to keep up with everyone else. And these tactics that had started as Weinstein's wet, you know, Weinstein saw himself as an underdog because he was from New York, he was indie, whatever. He was doing these edgy movies. Uh, that's more true of the early 90s than the late 90s when they were owned by Disney and doing like, you know, Cider House Rules. Nevertheless, um, this these tactics that were meant as the kind of underdog tactics then got adopted by the major studios and everyone was doing it. And that's how you get like the creation of a cottage industry. Exactly. And a lot of the people that came up under Harvey and were working on his campaigns, those are the people that now run the Oscar season. If you look at someone like Lisa Tabak at Netflix, mm -hmm. who was a Harvey operator for many years and now runs the awards operation at Netflix, which has been very effective. Uh, they haven't won Best Picture yet, but they get a lot of nominations and awards. And a lot of these people that were with Harvey are now populating the industry. So he did sort of seed it in a way that created the frenzy that we see today. Um, you mentioned how people complain and complain and then copy what they were complaining about. I'm wondering your take on the Andrea Riseborough campaign from this year, because we've talked a little bit yes. about, about it on this show, how this was a quote grassroots campaign, a movie nobody saw grossed $30,000 at the box office. And all of a sudden through the, through the unbelievable efforts of her director, her director's wife, Mary McCormack, her manager, Jason Weinberg, all of a sudden they got all of these actresses to start publicly supporting this movie. And Kate Blanchett is shouting it out on stage at the Critics' Choice Awards. And then next thing you know, she gets nominated and everybody has a fit. The Academy has to investigate. Did they improperly contact all of these people? Were they harassing them? Is it too much? And I think there's going to be some rule changes after this year. Uh, what do you think about that? And do you do you endorse the kind of thing that Andrea Riseborough's team did? <laughs> I mean, it was fascinating to watch happen after having written this book, especially uh, going in deep about the the Weinstein years, because in one sense, it reminded me of how that played out, the sort of heyday of, of Miramax versus DreamWorks, because every time one of those companies came up with some new strategy that the Academy thought was beyond the pale, they would create a new rule right. to, to, to stop it from happening again. You can't again. do a phone bank where you're just calling Academy members because that's what Harvey was doing. You can't go to people's front doors and say, hey, have you seen Philomena? Would you like to see it? We have a bus waiting out here for you to go see it. You can't do that. There are lots of things that Harvey was doing that you now cannot do. And are we going to see stricter rules around the kinds of outreach and uh, social media posts that the Riseboro campaign was doing? Yeah, and so in a way, the Academy having a, a review of, of this very new kind of campaign um, did remind me of sort of how the Academy had to, after not saying they didn't want to play Big Brother, had to start keeping up with 
these new tactics that people were coming up with year after year. At the same time, the Andrea Riseborough campaign was an utter break from the the Weinstein model because it didn't involve a lot of money, a lot of parties, a lot of glitz. Um, and it was, I don't know if grassroots is the right word for anything <laughs> involving, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Winslet and Kate Blanchett and Edward Norton. Um, but it was a, a, a sort of zero budget influence campaign. And I think it reflects how influence as a concept has changed in, you know, in the, in the world of social media. So of course the Academy doesn't have like a bunch of rules around, you know, how you can talk on social media because it hadn't been done before. Um, and so they have to sort of play catch up with, you know, what the guidelines are. Um, at the same time, you know, I felt like there was an element of hypocrisy in having uh, Francis Fisher or something go on on social media and talk about how so-and-so is a lock and, you know, there's one spot open, da-da-da-da-da, and how this was totally inappropriate. I mean, that's how all the the campaign strategists talk behind closed doors. Like, that is what campaigning is. Right. These people just did it on social media and without a f- sort of formal budget. So Well, and the allegation, at least, is that the campaign was providing social media assets to some of these influential members to then essentially serve as advertising units for the campaign, free advertising units. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I think they're investigating. But you know, I, I'm sort of mixed on it because I agree with you that what they did is innovative and does get around the, you know, you got to spend $5 million on all the billboards and ads and parties in order to even be, quote, in the conversation. That's great. They avoided that. But you can't just start harassing people. I mean, there are rules for a reason on this stuff. You should not be able to call and email agents and managers or talent directly and say, please post about my movie, post about my movie, post about my movie. And then they do it just to make you stop. Like that's not good either. And it does. I think it does reward people who have strong networks of friends in the industry. And you get into this kind of nepotism situation where do you, mm-hmm. do you really, do you have to be friends with people like Mary McCormick and Jason Weinberg in order to get an Oscar nomination? Does someone like Danielle Deadweiler, who many people were upset, uh, got quote pushed out because of this, does she suffer because she doesn't have that network of industry friends. And how do you account for that? Yeah. And that is also not new. I mean, mm-hmm. the reason that these cat, these nominees go on a schmooze campaign is to get to know Academy members. I mean, when Roberto Benini was out with life is beautiful, Weinstein basically moved him to America for three months. So he could just go out to dinner and lunches every day with, you know, old timey, academy members and like charm them yeah i mean so they do it all the like time the charm offensive this is this was the charm offensive on zero budget with social media totally. uh, or something like that and i think you know it, it's it was a way of leveling the leveling the playing field but at the same time there's this other racial dynamic that unlevels the playing field that it was sort of working against um and created a whole big, interesting mess of a conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that the, the Roberto Benigni example, is I call it the Eddie Redmayne tactic, because he did the mm. same thing, where he just moved to LA and was shaking everybody's hand. And you're seeing it this year with Austin Butler. It's sort of the campaign strategy for the young, unknown actor that wants to be taken seriously and has this big breakout, where if you want to 
be known and compete with the well-known actors. You've got to literally shake every hand and be at every event and do every media thing possible in order to be in that conversation where you are undeniable. And I remember in August of, I believe it was 2012, uh, when 12 Years a Slave came out, I couldn't pronounce Lupita Nyong'o's name. I didn't know who she was. I had never heard of her before. And by the time, this was literally four months later, I was like, no more Lupita Nyong'o. I, like, I need her out of my life. She's everywhere. She, I could not avoid Lupita Nyong'o. And it worked. She won. Right. But at the same time, as many examples as there are of mm-hmm. someone doing, you know, going on a successful charm offensive, there are so many counterexamples. Like Monique for Precious True. defiantly refused to do anything involved, like campaigning. And she won. And then, you know, when Melissa Leo, in a, in a very Riseboro-esque way, like, placed her own ads, it was seen as oh, so tacky. And those were amazing. Those, I, I saw that ad before it ran. We had, at Hollywood Reporter, we had a wall where, the, you know, the, the next day's issue or, the, you know, when the, we went weekly, the next week's issue was up on the wall. And I saw that ad before it ran, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. What is this? Is this for real? Is this a parody? They're like, yeah, no. I yeah. Said, and I actually, I remember asking, and I was like, who's the buyer? Is, is Paramount doing this for the fighter? And they're like, no, no, it's not a studio buy. And I was like, oh my gosh, she went rogue. She's doing her own Oscar campaign. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, even going all the way back to 1935, Betty Davis, of course, blamed Warner Brothers when she didn't get nominated. And that started a long tradition of the talent blaming the studio for a bad campaign, which makes Mm. everyone at the studio crazy and causes them to go even crazier the next time it comes around. And you get this kind of upward spiral where all of a sudden it's 2023 and these campaigns are out of control and they're spending five, 10, $15 million to try to win minor Oscars. I mean, if you look at what Netflix is doing this year for Pinocchio for the Guillermo del Toro movie, Mm -hmm. that's in the animated film category. It's a movie that's been on Netflix for a long time. It's probably not going to get any discernible bounds out of winning it's just for vanity just to you know to say that they won and they are spending it's got to be 10 15 million dollars on this campaign for that movie and good for them you know they want to be in business with del toro and he's game for this he's out every night doing events and stuff but i mean it's it's getting kind of out of hand well netflix is an interesting kind of sub conversation with the oscars because they are clearly just chasing oscars they really 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 want to win them And they have been, one year after the next, stymied in their pursuit of a Best Picture Oscar. I mean, 
you know, Roma lost. I mean, that campaign for Roma was gigantic. Mm -hmm. They, you know. Power of the dog. Power of the dog. I mean, the fact that the first um, streamer to win last year was not even Netflix. It was it was Coda um, for Apple. Apple. That drove them completely crazy. Yeah, and I think if it hadn't been for the slap, that would have been a huge story coming out of last year's Oscars, the first streaming company to win, and it wasn't Netflix. But, you know, what's fascinating to me is, like, why does Netflix need Oscars so badly? And, you know, it gets back to the question of, like, why people do this, why people pursue Oscars like this magical talisman. You know, the, the cynical answer might be, you know, money, um, status, you know, your next your next paycheck might be bigger. Um, but I think there's something like more deeply psychological to it. Like Netflix needs to, they, they need it. They need to, they, they need to know that they are creating Oscar winning work on some level. And, um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, Rachel Syme, my colleague at the New Yorker was on your show yeah. recently to talk about her Netflix piece and Netflix might be changing. Like they may be evolving past the point where they care a lot about, you know, winning the best picture Oscar and it's more about appealing to, you know, some uh, global audience with whatever stuff they can create. See, I have a different take on that. I, I, I think that Netflix pursues Oscars precisely because 95% of what they do is chasing that gourmet cheeseburger global audience. Uh-huh. I think that they want to be able to telegraph to the town, to the talent, that if you work with Netflix, we can win you an Oscar. And that's been true from the very beginning, that they wanted to establish themselves in town. They knew that they did not have the 90-year history of all these other studios. They wanted to say, we are just the same. We will win you an Oscar. We can work with the kind of people like Inaritu mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Noah Baumbach and uh, you know Jane Campion and people that are Oscar-winning type filmmakers, Scorsese. And that's one reason they do it. The second, I think there is a tangible financial or status benefit of having things on your service that are differentiated. And one great way to differentiate is to say this won an Oscar. You can put it you can put it on the interface. We are an Oscar winning platform. It's funny so much of what you're you have just said reminds me of Miramax in the 90s. Absolutely. Minus the minus the crazy Weinstein factor, of course. <laughs> but but Netflix literally has a Weinstein acolyte running their awards operation. It's very similar. Yes, and part of the reason why Miramax pursued Oscars so crazily and aggressively is that they wanted to keep this stable of of talent with them. They wanted to attract, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's and, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino's and and keep these people, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of their talent was treated terribly as well, you know, and, and many were literally sexually assaulted um, by the, the head of the company. But, you know, in order to maintain the kind of prestige that kept attracting talent to them and, 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 and giving them the kind of clout to keep making the next, the next movie, the next movie, the next movie, um, they pursued these Oscars. And it, it got to the point where um, many people who were involved in those movies later realized that the 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 kind of back end profits that they thought they were going to get from these gigantic hits like the english patient or shakespeare in love d- had disappeared because they all went into the oscar campaign silver linings <laughs> silver yeah. linings playbook there's still litigation over that and people like jennifer lawrence and bradley cooper got screwed on that movie and they were you know they were the toast of the town when they were getting awards 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the uh, the producer of the English patient Saul Zantz basically went to his grave suing Weinstein. <laughs> All right, give us your prediction, best picture. Oh, that's too easy. Um, I know <laughs> everything everywhere, right? Yeah, I think so. So I'll, I'll give you one of the tougher categories: best actor. Is it Frazier? Is it Colin Farrell? Or is it Austin Butler? As most people think. I think it's Austin Butler. Really? You think the but Eddie Redmayne? I could be totally wrong. You think I just the Roberto think... Benigni campaign has been successful? And he's no, got it. it's more that time and time again. For whatever reason, the Academy goes for you know someone who play like a real icon, especially right. a music icon, like who self destructs. I mean, how many times have we seen that? Yeah, it's Rami Malek all over again. I was shocked. Rami he Malek, Renee Zellweger for Judy. It just over and over and over again. It's like mm -hmm. if you play a self destructive like music figure, yep. here's your Oscar. So never bet against that. Yeah, seriously. Michael Shulman, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited for the Chris Rock live special Saturday night on Netflix? Yeah, to be honest. I don't know if I will watch it live, but I will certainly watch it. That's the thing is it's airing live globally first time netflix has done this where they are you know they've done they got the tech down they say and they are able to do a full-on live broadcast to all 230 million subscribers around the world uh, i guess it'll air at like four in the morning in australia or something like that <laughs> uh, but the vast majority of people will watch it not live and that's what's great about this kind of format where it's a comedy special and there is some fun to watching it live you don't know what he's going to say but there's also value in having this on the platform going forward it's very different from like an award show or sports or something like that where if you don't watch it live you kind of don't want to watch it what is your do you think that this is the beginning of a new era for live streaming events I do. So this is my prediction. I think this is going to be a hit. I think that I don't want to give a number on the number of people that are going to watch because I frankly, I don't know. And I don't think we will ever get that number from Netflix, but uh, maybe we will. It, um, it will be big enough, I think, to generate interest. And Netflix now has advertising tiers. They're not putting ads in the live special on Netflix. It will have ads for the ad tier after the fact. But because Netflix and all the others are getting into ads, they're going to want more live programming. We talked about this with Ben Winston, and this is a big play for Netflix. I think this is going to be, when we look back at the history of Netflix, this is going to be a big moment on Saturday because it's going to be proof positive that they can have a hit in the live space, and they're going to do more of these. And remind me, this was already planned before the slap, right? Well, it was, it was planned that he owed them another special. He did a two special deal with Netflix for $40 million and he had done one on the service. And after the fact, this, I believe after the slap, they said, why don't we do it live? Now the timing here a week before this year's Oscars. It's impeccable it, timing. <laughs> it is very good timing. They claim that that is not uh, because of the Oscars. They say this was the first time that it was available, uh, that the technology was available for them to do this. And I don't know if I believe that. I think they like the fact that it's a week from the Oscars. It would have been amazing if they did it on the night of the Oscars. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think they want to compete like that. And I, I know they care very much about winning Oscars. So they didn't want to crap on the Academy like that. But it is good timing. And he is going to talk about the Will Smith stuff. And I heard that there are going to be some jokes that he has not done on his tour, for the, uh, specifically for this special. So I think the internet will probably blow up on that. But my prediction, this will be a big hit. And we'll see a lot more of this. 
All right. That is the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Michael Schulman. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 